and Derek got his pen. Derek, how you doing, man? Oh, great. I'm doing well. It, we had a week off because I was in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Tell but us. Now, uh, I'm, uh, now I'm back. Yeah, what happened in D.C.? What, you, what were you doing down there? So what I did is I was invited to speak at the local affirmation chapter um, next to Charlie Bird. You know Charlie Bird, the gay Cosmo Cougar? The gay, yes, I've heard yes, of him. Yes, okay. So he and I um, uh, both spoke together. To, this, to the affirmation chapter, and my topic was on LGBTs and the Bible, mostly. And the title of my talk was, We Have Endured Many Things. And once I have a link, I can get that to people um, of the recording. You recorded it sweet. Yes. Bonus content, yes. Yay. <laughs> awesome. And while I was there, I also went to the National History of African American History and uh, Culture yes. again. Then the, the second time. And I also went to the Bible Museum. Does that really count the second time? Because, you know, the first time you didn't really get to go all the way through. You ain't right. going to spend but like, what, an hour, maybe two hours? I was there, there the first for a time? few hours. The first, and now I went back and mm -hmm. did more. Excellent. Excellent. Did you, uh, did you make it to the Emmett Till exhibit this time? I did. Oh, man. That was the hardest part of going through for me was, like, first of all, that whole section of the museum is just quiet. Like, it's a very somber atmosphere. And then just seeing everything and then mm -hmm. reading the descriptions and then you know particularly particularly those words from his mother talking about how she wants people to see what they did to her baby like that right. was that was hard that was easily the heaviest part of the museum tour for me but uh i'm glad i went uh, i did not plan on it being that emotionally draining i will definitely go back to dc again and probably take a few days just to go through the museum so I can get the full experience. Like I only had, I only spent about three or four hours in there the first time myself and I was just exhausted by hour two. So mm -hmm. I really hope to go through there again and get the full experience. But that's great. I'm glad you got yeah. to go to DC. I'm glad you got to go to that uh, conference and I'm glad you got to go see both the Namak and the Bible Museum. Right, there's a Bible Museum. I just want to say one thing about the Bible Museum. Yes, sir. So the Slave Bible of 1808 uh, that's owned by Fisk University is there on display, and I got to see it. Um, and this is, I think I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago because I had known about this Bible for many years, and I finally got to see it. And this is the one that takes out the Exodus narrative. It takes out so many texts it's just a selection of texts from the bible um uh, to be used in the british west indies for the teaching of enslaved people interesting yes okay the exodus narrative was taken out of right. course because of course it was right Why and there's we? power in the bible mm -hmm. that uh that's there and i'll get to that later when we talk about rachel held evans okay sounds good so uh, with that, then, why don't we actually go ahead and jump into uh, this week's news, the short stuff first, and uh, then we'll go into some of, the, some of the more involved pieces of news. First thing I got, which is the big news of the week, was the temple marriage change. Um, we went the year-long period that was typically required for between a civil marriage and a temple ceiling was eliminated. Right. So that was a big deal. I personally don't really understand why I don't think it should have been in place in the first place. I don't know why it was there. I don't, I don't know much about it, about why it was implemented. And I don't have particularly strong feelings about it either way. To me, marriage is a marriage. But this seemed to be a balm for a lot of people to simply be able to get their civil marriage done. That way they could include their families in the ceremony and then immediately get a temple ceiling done afterward. 
So I could I could see from that perspective, but beyond that, I simply don't understand why the why the ceremony was. I don't know why it was this way in the first place, and I don't have a theory why. So what I've heard, I haven't seen any um, primary documentation from the time on this, but what I've heard is that the the leaders of the church didn't want the focus to be on this big, lavish um, civil wedding where you invite all your friends, have this big thing, and, and make that the centerpiece and make the temple just like an add-on thing. Mm. Like, you know how when you go to the airplane, you can add on, like, oh, I want to add on an extra bag for $25? They don't want that. They wanted the temple ceiling to be the primary The main event. Thing. Yeah. And they didn't want people to, to make a real big deal out of the civil thing and spend, you know, thousands of dollars and hundreds of people, which happens in our culture. Um, and, and so in countries where civil, in countries where a temple ceiling would count for the government as a marriage as well, such as the United States and a, and a number of other countries, mm. that's what they did. In, there are other countries that will not recognize a temple ceiling as a civil marriage, and then in those countries you would have to do both. Mm. Um, and the church allowed that to happen in those countries, uh, that they would get the civil marriage first and then be sealed. Mm. Yeah, I remember it was like that in uh, where I served my mission. It was that way in South Africa. And I did. that was the first time I had heard about something like that being done. So that's when I started first raising questions about this whole idea of, this, of the civil marriage versus the temple sealing being separate events entirely. But... I don't know. I, again, I wasn't thinking about it that much because certainly at that time, while I was serving a mission, I wasn't thinking much about marriage, and I knew things were going to be different mm-hmm. in the States because, of course, I was going to marry somebody who was a faithful member of the church, and we would have a temple ceiling that would also be our civil marriage, and all of our guests that we invited were, of course, members of the church and would be glorious. I I never really thought about it, and I was never made to. <laughs> yeah, well, part of, the, part of the suffering is... Well, for converts, like yes. if if you join the church, your parents can't see you get married, um, or if you were raised in the church and your parents either left the church or no longer qualify for a temple recommend, they won't get to see you married. Mm. And for many parents, this is like what they live for. Like that's the, yep. one of the highlights of their life is seeing their kids graduate, seeing their kids marry, seeing their kids uh, just do a few number of things. They want to be there for that. And this was very tough for a lot of people in the church who are in that situation because they had to choose between getting a temple ceiling or having a civil marriage where their parents could, or friends or could come. Mm. And a lot of people were left out by this policy, and there was a lot of pain. Um, and this policy change now has brought in a lot of pain, even though it's the right change. Yeah. They... they uh, it will still be painful for, for a lot of people for this reason, because back when it was back when it was in place, people would make meaning out of it. They would say, "Well, this is awful, but there's some something that makes it worth the sacrifice because this is what God wants, or this is the better thing." And I know it's tough, but but it's what God wants. Now that the policy's gone, they think, "Well, I was doing this for no reason," mm-hmm. and that brings in a whole bunch of suffering on another layer um and and so there's people that that agree well yeah i wish i would have had this policy but it changed back when i got married um but i didn't and now it's just bringing up a lot of 
trauma for them. Yeah, understood. Well, yeah, man, that is uh, that is the big piece of news this week. And I think one, how it connects to the LGBT world is it will help solidify the difference between civil marriage and temple marriage for a lot of people in the U.S. And uh, I think people get those confused and people think that uh, become threatened like, oh, if there's legal civil marriage, then somehow that will the government will force the temples to to do gay ceilings and that will never happen under our current constitution mm. and so people are needlessly afraid of that um and they're yeah it's just uh, i think just having that sort of separation will help people um see civil marriages differently and realize oh yeah that's a marriage mm. well all right then thanks for sharing that thought man all right what else do we got going on this week and this month, it's Ramadan. I it mean, is that whole thing. Yep. I've never. Have you ever? Uh, have you ever participated in Ramadan out of solidarity for our Muslim brothers and sisters? I have. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're not the whole month, mm-hmm. um, but for day for the day where our fast coincides. Well, one of our uh, first Sundays will fall within Ramadan, and so what I've done is fasted with um, my Muslim siblings in solidarity with them. And then break the fast together with them at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, um, and I think that was a very meaningful experience. There's things we can learn from one another about the power of fasting, um, the, the, the way that it, it uh, teaches you things like discipline and dependence on God and um, self-denial or d- delay of gratification, all these other things that when you're hungry, you can take that hunger and turn it towards God and make it as though you are hungry for God. And that mm. is a really interesting thing. Um, and I think there's a Muslims in our country definitely need to benefit from more under mutual understanding and uh, grace. And uh, and uh, tolerance isn't the right word because it's like, oh, I'm tolerating that, that annoying thing that is Yeah, whatever. as if it's an annoying thing. Yeah. I think just mutual respect and hospitality is what I would say rather than tolerance. Certainly, certainly. I almost would say, just in the brief amount of research and the brief knowledge I've gained on Ramadan, I could certainly cultivate a, I I don't know if holy envy is the right phrase, but I I certainly have a certain degree of respect for the practice Mm -hmm. of fasting. Particularly, it's more than just food that they're uh, fasting from and also how they begin and end their fast. I mean, there's, it's, it, they're both ritualistic things that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they end their fast the same way the Prophet Muhammad ended his fast mm-hmm. with what some dates and some water, something like dates that. Dates and milk, yeah. Yeah, dates and milk, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. There's a whole uh, feast celebration at the end of the day once, uh, once the Ramadan is concluded. Mm-hmm. They do more than simply, like I said, abstain from food and water. You don't, you don't smoke. You don't engage in sexual intercourse for like the whole month. Like there's, it's a, it's a lot more involved than simply starving your body of food and drink. It's also starving your body of vices and Well, I just wanted to say, um, like the prohibitions against food and sexual intercourse only apply from sun from sunrise yeah. to sunset. So yes. within the nights, you can partake of those things. Right, right. The whole, yeah, the fast only applies from sun up to yeah. sundown. But uh, yeah, man, it's all about... I think there's a greater acknowledgement of the spirit of what the fast is supposed to do, which is mm-hmm. to 
remind your body who's in charge. Uh, and also remind yourself that, you know, God is the one in charge and with him, all things are possible. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like because of the way they do it, they have a better understanding of the spirit of what the fast is supposed to do as opposed to we in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who sometimes may just do it out of, I, I don't want to say road acceptance, but it almost feels, it almost feels, I, I don't have the word. It, I don't have the word. Well, part <laughs> of it is it could be just a routine and it's not done with intentionality or a sense of deliberateness. And mm-hmm. I think Muslims from what I can see, are really um, have a lot of structure around it uh, and yes. they've processed it in a certain way. It's just like, oh, that's something that I was supposed to do this month and I forgot and I ate breakfast because I didn't realize it was already <laughs> May. You know, yeah. that's that yeah. could happen to us. But that, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, Ramadan. Um, a couple other things that happened this week or in these last two weeks that we've uh, been gone. Okay, in the last little while Rachel Held Evans uh, she passed away I admit I don't really I never knew who she was I've seen people share her quotes or things that she said on social media but I still didn't really know who she was but mad people on my timelines have been sharing the news of her passing and also and also quotes that she made now from what I understand based on what you've told me and what I've seen people post she, I suppose, is part of the evangelical Christian community who also simultaneously challenges that community with, I don't want to say her brand of Christianity, but with Christianity in general. And uh, just based on the few quotes I've seen, I, 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 I see that she understands and that she makes an effort to make sure that Christianity, that the Bible are always used as, not as weapons of, mm-hmm. not as weapons of, um, dispossessing or dehumanization or death but as tools of charity and other positive things yeah um so she came out of the evangelical world um in the end she ended up uh, part of the episcopal church as part of her re-churching i think she would be a good uh source for people who are within the lds world who are struggling with their own faith crises of how to tap into a more authentic uh, version of themselves like her story is really good. I just want to real quick uh, Read one quote from her. This is from her book a year of biblical womanhood page right. 296 um, For those who count the Bible as sacred Interpretation is not a matter of whether to pick and choose But how to pick and choose we are all selective We all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible to our lives We all go to the text looking for something and we all have a tendency to find it So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we reading with the prejudice of love or are we reading with the prejudices of judgment and power, self-interest and greed? If you are looking for the Bible verses with which to support slavery, you you will will find find them. them. (laughs) If you are looking for the verses with which to abolish slavery, you You will will find find them. (laughs) If you are looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to liberate and honor women, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you are looking for an outdated and irrelevant ancient text, you will find it. If you are looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. 
close quote. And so basically she's saying the most important question isn't, well, what does the Bible say, but what am I looking for? And I love what she said about a choice between reading the text with a prejudice of love, Mm. which I never thought of love as a prejudice, but if you look at Christ's whole ministry, he was biased Mm. on behalf of people, on behalf of love, on behalf of these things. And he definitely read his scriptures with that uh, bias. Mm. And I think the same thing, what what Rachel says is of the Bible, we can say about our living prophets. Yeah. Like if you look at general conference talks from the past 50 years, you can find a quote for almost anything on any side. And it's up to the Spirit, which is why I'm so glad that we're Latter-day Saints, is we have the Spirit to help us. Um you know, hold fast to what is right and, and know what is true and figure out what is powerful. And, and a lot of those talks, a lot of those general conference talks won't ever get quoted again and they'll, they'll drop off of the, the repertoire. Mm. But many of them will be cited over and over and over and those are the ones that will become, for us, uh, living voices. Absolutely. I like that a lot. Um I came across this same quote when I was like doing my brief research on Rachel Held Evans just because I knew she was, I knew she said a lot of things that I would likely agree with but this particular quote that you just read was one that really stood out to me. If I could, I want to read from that same selection yeah. a little bit later. She she writes, "If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm." With scripture, we've been entrusted with some of the most powerful stories ever told. How we harness that power, whether for good or evil, oppression or liberation, changes everything. I really like this idea. I, again, you've already said it, but it's not mm-hmm. about what the scriptures say. It's what we look for. The scriptures have always been used as a mirror of our own temperaments, a mirror of our own thought processes. And I think, as you said, as long as we use that, like, the words of the words of Christ, um, you know, mm. the words of our leaders, in addition to our personal revelation, you said we have the spirit. That's the blessing that we have. We kind of use that as a three-legged stool or a way to triangulate where our faith is supposed to be. Then we're going to be okay at the end of the day. But this is a, it's a very, it just called to my mind how important it is to make sure that we are analyzing all three of those things in a way that allows us to make sure we're being charitable. Yeah, and this gets back to the slaves' Bible as well, Mm. Um, because the actual real Bible in Exodus 21 says, well, if you steal, if you kidnap a person and sell them, you should be put to death. It says that. Yep. And that's not in the in the slaves' Bible. Mm -hmm. They they left that part out. Of course they did. Of course they would. Yeah. (laughs) Like why would they? But Um, and just seeing what they what they kept kept in and left out is uh was a very moving experience Mm. man but anyway rest in peace Rachel Held Evans clearly had uh an incredible impact on this world and um I'm personally I'm personally grateful for these words I'm going to be looking more into her now that I know uh the breadth of her belief and how much of an influence she's had on this world next thing I want to highlight so Another thing that happened, another synagogue shooting, this time in San Diego. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that I personally want to say about this. Just a brief brief summary of what happened. A suburban town just outside of San Diego, a young white male, 19 years old, decided to shoot up a synagogue. Three people were hurt, one died, 
thankfully that's all that was that's all that happened his weapon jammed during the shooting but still this is like the second time a synagogue has been attacked just this year hmm. like vanilla isis is really out in these streets you know what i'm saying yeah. like this is there 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 is a rise in domestic terrorism that we have not fully right. come to reckon with i i feel like since definitely all domestic terrorism since 2017 has been per- perpetrated by white people and i feel like by white men in particular and there there's been a steady rise over the last decade of white terrorism the one catalyst i can point to where we see a dramatic increase in the in these events is of course the election of president barack obama there is a decade of neglect and turning a blind eye to um, the rising current of white supremacist movements combined with a rise of political divisiveness that has brought, I suppose, unprecedented modern wave of domestic terrorism on religious, ethnic, and, and racial lines. And it's, uh, it's very unfortunate. Um, we've seen an African-American church become the scene of a horrible atrocity in South Carolina. We've seen others burned in Louisiana, in Louisiana, uh, we've seen mosques here and abroad attacked or desecrated, and the American synagogues in Pittsburgh and now San Diego have become the site of mass shootings. Um, <laughs> this is all to say that white terrorism has been long on the rise, and America hasn't thought to do much about it. And my theory on why America doesn't really want to do anything about it is that, one, American extremists tend to have guns. Al-Qaeda wannabes do not. American terrorists vote. And international terrorists don't. There seems to be this lack of... this lack of proper outrage given to the greater threats, and it is a, it is a huge problem. I feel like it's going to be ultimately one of the things that leads to the downfall of the American country if, if it is not properly checked. Did I tell you that I, um, so this uh, terrorist wrote and posted online a seven-page document. He has a manifesto, yes. And I read it. Mm. Um, and it's, it's awful. It's, and it's not just awful um, for one reason, but there, it's just he's operating with, a, a misunderstanding of even the biblical tradition. He cited the Bible mm-hmm. a number of times in defense of his uh, approach to Jews. And not the first time that's been done either. Right. People have right. used the Bible to justify the genocide or justify the killing of Islam, <laughs> like Muslims and, and Jews. And what's clear is that, um, that anti-Semitism and racism are inseparable. And what he was trying to do is... Um, make America white again, like literally. He mm. he was he's uh, felt threatened wrongly um, by Jews and people of color. He used the term genocide, did he not, in that manifesto? Just afraid of the, I think European white genocide. genocide. Yes. Yeah. Like, and so there's just a whole bunch of mess here, and there's a whole bunch of responsibility that we, as uh, those of us who are white Christians have to bear on this because of how we have not done a good good job in general of teaching these texts which mm. have been repudiated by almost every christian denomination catholic protestant eastern orthodox most of these officially no longer use these texts the way that they have been used 
for over a millennium mm-hmm. in Christian history. Um, to say that all Jews are guilty of, of Christ's death or that all Jews are inherently uh, all these awful things that are actually in our New Testament. We had, There's a significant amount of, of anti-Jewish polemic in the New Testament, um, which we have to A, admit that's there, and B, not let it be used in this way. Mm. But, but yeah, this... I, I just it's it's awful as to what happened and this type of thing can lead to many Jews throughout the country feeling unsafe and um, it's it's like something that targets that's what how terrorism works of course is you ter- target one thing and then you hurt a whole bunch of more people than actually were there yeah absolutely I feel like I really feel like we're gonna pay for this if we don't address it soon that that just that just about every civilization crumbled from within before it was conquered or ultimately destroyed should really be a warning to America. Like Jerusalem fell soon after they rejected Christ and despite the prosperity of their citizens, Rome ultimately was a victim of their own moral decay as well. And I feel like America is heading that, heading that same way. We're letting things like white nationalism, political divisiveness just kind of tear us apart before we get either taken over or simply destroy ourselves. And I really right. don't. Sorry, you got a thought. Well, I do have to say that Jerusalem fell not because of their wickedness, but because they were being oppressed by Rome, and they rebelled against Rome, and mm-hmm. they lost the rebellion. They lost the rebellion, yeah. Yeah. Um, almost everyone lost the rebellion against Rome. Mm. It was just a, a massive military engine that, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, it, that uh, really crushed resistance. Mm. Well, I don't really want to – I kind of – I was reading about, I suppose, a possible solution to what it is America is experiencing right now. I, I know the Book of Mormon talks about it. I know the Bible talks about just this cycle of you know, great empires ultimately falling, perhaps because of wickedness. I found, I found something in uh, Second Corinthians I really liked. Mm-hmm. This is, I didn't source it, but I'm going to assume 2 Corinthians 7.14. But this is, in essence, the Lord saying how a nation can ultimately heal itself uh, from a state like this. Reads, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. So, yeah. America, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge this very real strain of white nationalism that is happening in our country, and we need to give it the same resources that we're giving to international terrorism. Like, by and large, this domestic terrorism uh, brought on by white nationalism is definitely a greater threat to us than anything international. In fact, I've already said it. Domestic terrorism by white nationalists has literally been the only source mm-hmm. of terrorism for America since 2017. And I hate to bring this up, but you and I saw this awful post on the LDS Freedom Forum by this guy who is so disappointed by the direction our church is taking. Like, like most of my, uh, I hear a lot of complaints about the church from the liberal and progressive end, but here I'm hearing a complaint from the other end, like, oh no. Our church is now no longer homophobic enough or sexist enough or racist enough, and mm. this is the second great apostasy. Like, he was serious, mm. and we know it was a he, of course. Yep. <laughs> um, like, it's one of his—he was so disappointed about the changes in the temple. Um, 
in the direction of more equality for women. He's like, this is messed up. Like, and he was so threatened by that, and he was so threatened by how our leaders have spoken out the few times they have about white nationalism and mm -hmm. racism. They've made a few little comments. Yep. But here's what I think they should do, uh, the leaders of the church. Yes, they've made a few comments here and there, but where's the enforcement? Who has been excommunicated for being racist, mm. right? When they put church discipline behind what they're saying, then we'll know that that they really mean it. Right. Yeah, I'm not aware of anyone who's been uh, at all disciplined for not that not that church discipline is the solution to everything. I think there's problems with with uh, policing people in certain ways, but um, yeah, I, I would love to see like oh. I saw that you uh, you are promoting white nationalism. You don't get your temple recommend. Because mm -hmm. there are about five questions in the temple recommend interview that you would fail yeah. if you're a white nationalist. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are, I would dare say, far less severe sins that people get disfellowshipped for or excommunicated for than racism itself. Right. You right. Know what I'm saying we, we were excommunicated excommunicating people for entering into homosexual marriages. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, how is racism not a bigger deal than that? Right. How is refusing to give up, how is refusing to adhere to the word of wisdom worthy of dis disfellowshipment? How is cohabitating wor worthy of getting disfellowship, but nationalism or outright racism not worthy of disfellowshipping or excommunication. Like we got to be, we have to be more consistent and we have to send the right message about what the more grievous sins are. Mm -hmm. And racism is a very serious, very grievous sin that you're right. We don't really put a lot of muscle behind. Like, yeah, the church said something. They wrote not one, but two statements in the space of 24 hours just to address one white nationalist who claimed the name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. But was she excommunicated? Yeah. It's so, yeah, we, we got to do better in that regard. We got to be more consistent and we got to send the right messages about what, what, the real, what the problems are. And I think that is almost it for the, yeah, that's about it for the news. Mm -hmm. Where are we at for time? We're at 30 minutes. We should probably move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get to this mental health minute another day. So for this week in Come Follow Me, yo, this was this was a fun one because we got mm -hmm. to see a lot of parables. We got to see um, who was it? The foolish rich man. The parable of the great supper. We got to see the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the unjust steward. The parable mm -hmm. of the rich man and Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of good lessons to be learned from parables. Uh, Derek, are there any particular that? Stood out to you or that you want to talk about? Well, I just want to talk about some of the themes we have. Um, okay. One of them is the theme of reversal, like the reversal of privilege, I, I, I think even would be a good thing. Like the, um, the rich man who had everything in this, both in the parable of the rich man and then the rich man and Lazarus. You have the person on top, like, oh, you've got everything, you, you're all set. Mm. And then it all flips. Yeah. And, and Lazarus, the poor man, is now in the proper place. And the rich man is told, you who had all these good things in your life now are in a place of torment. Mm. And I think this is what I want to say to all the people who are, 
are nervous about their proclamation families. Like, oh, I need a wife and two kids or else I'm not going to whatever. I need to have this per- particular thing. And, and he, right now here, straight white people are on the top in the church. Mm. If there's any lesson we have from Jesus is that's going to be reversed. Yep. First when, the the kingdom, last. when the kingdom of God is, is fully implemented, all these people who are on top now don't think that they're going to be on top in the next one, right? Mm. Yeah, I'd be careful if, if I, I were, you know, on top uh, right now. Um, and this gets back to so much of what he was talking about is justifying his own ministry because he was attacked for reaching out to people on the margins. Mm. Um, and he justified this with the, you know, the parable of the sheep and the, the lost coin and the, uh, the prodigal son. And the parable of the Great Supper, yeah, I would say. about about, you know, this idea of repentance. And he was saying, look, no, what the, what the other people thought repentance was was about adopting a particular narrow standard of purity and law observance. Mm. That's what they thought repentance was. But what Jesus says is, no, repentance is showing up to the party. Yeah, show up. Um, both the prodigal son and in the Great Supper, like no, especially like, I want my people back. Yeah. I want my people back. I want my sheep back, my coin back, my son back, and they're back, and I'm happy, mm. and I'm hanging out with them, mm. and that's repentance. Repentance is fun, right? Like it's a celebration. It is. <laughs> um, but a lot of people uh, have this narrow understanding, sort of a checklist, rule-based, superficial understanding of repentance and that uh, this gets back to like Rachel Held Evans approach to the Bible. There's going to be some people that take the Bible that way. Some people that take our living prophets that way. And obviously you and I don't take it that way. And I, mm-hmm. and I definitely think we are on the side of your Jesus is on the side of us. He is so clear about this. Mm-hmm. Like the people who were invited to the party didn't show up for the All lamest the- reasons. Might I yeah. add, like, can we just have a look at some of these reasons yeah. they gave. Like one guy didn't show up because he bought a piece of land without looking at it first. And then when the day came, he's like, oh, hey, I got to go see this land I bought that I didn't check out before I bought it. So I, I, I can't come. Another guy was like, oh, I got a plus one now. I can't come. Just all these people had the lamest excuses as to why they couldn't come. Like they were borderline laughable if it wasn't, you know, if they weren't missing out on such a big event. Right. And I think that's very indicative of how we can be as Mm -hmm. the quote-unquote covenant people of the Lord. Like, I think about this all the time when it comes to converts. I see people who have been invited to the party and teach me so much and gain so much because I have taken the gospel for granted. Like, I see this all the time among members. Sometimes we don't do stuff for the stupidest reasons. We have a temple right 10 minutes away from where we live right now. And so many of us don't take advantage of that as often as we should. Like I, I view, when I think of the parable of the Great Supper, I just think of this whole having an excuse, having the lamest excuses at that for why we are not taking advantage of the blessings that we are allowed to take part of. We have access to the Spirit. We have access to the temples. We have access to so many things that we don't regularly yeah. take advantage of. And if we don't, we are going to find ourselves in a position where we could have had significantly mm-hmm. richer blessings. Um you know, when the next convert comes in, you know, speaks in tongues or has this powerful testimony or finds themselves in a position of leadership in four months and we're just back here chilling. <laughs> like, we ain't yeah. have access to this stuff this entire time. You know what I'm saying? Just, I, I see that a lot in members. I see this, I mean, I see this in myself. I'm projecting it, but yeah. I, I see this in myself too. 
Yeah, and the thing about the temple, I would say, yes, we live close to the temple, and the the fault isn't all the members. Part of our problem is we haven't given people the tools to appreciate the temple, to educate them. It's, it's almost like sex ed. If you say, oh, like, sex is great and it's private and we're not going to talk about it and it's so intimate, you'll figure it out later. We do the same thing with the temple. Mm. And just like with sex ed, it doesn't actually work out real pretty if you're thrown into something you don't know what you're doing and you don't have <laughs> a a basis for, for knowing how things work. Did you and get a temple prep class? I did. Okay. But my theory about the temple prep class is it only makes sense if you already know what's happening in the temple. <laughs> because everything is spoken in such it's generalities coded. It's and very, coded. Yeah. Like, you know, if you know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. But, but anyway, so I think if we, and we as a people don't really have a rich ritual tradition outside the temple. So we don't have naturally or culturally any a good foundation to appreciate this. And I think if you know the biblical text well, um, there's almost anything, almost, almost everything. You'd be shocked. Mm. Almost All these people are saying, well, everything's secret. It's almost all in the Bible. <laughs> there are things that are not and things that are um, analogies. But the, the more you understand the text of the Bible and also um, Moses, uh, the book of Moses, you'll, you'll see that there's, there's a richness there. Mm. Um, I want to go back to the parable of the sheep. Yeah, uh, the parable of the sheep. sheep. I want to talk about this one too. Yes, go. You go first. I'll go first. Okay. So the the lost sheep. I I gave a talk back in February. You know, um, for Black History Month or whatever. Me and Paulina got to speak. It was it was a good time. But I studied a lot about the parable of the lost sheep. I learned a lot about sheep that week. Like it was kind of accidental, but in learning about. Uh, the importance and the role of people who are on the margins inside of the church, I learned about, I learned a lot about sheep and I was brought to the parable of the lost sheep. So I was like, I better learn a little bit more about sheep and how shepherds operate. So I gave this talk back in February for Black History Month and I talked about what I learned about sheep in my analysis of the parable of the lost sheep. What we tend to take away from that parable is that every soul is valuable, valuable. That's a good lesson. And I, I certainly received that. But another lesson I took from that parable came after I learned about black sheep. As it turns out, God makes a black sheep for every hundred sheep. And they're called, they're typically called markers. They were called markers back then. They're called markers now. Or they were called markers in the Old West, which was, you know, less than 200 years ago or whatever. Um, for example, if you had five black sheep, then you knew you had 500 sheep total. Furthermore, you knew that your flock was safe when all your markers were in, which brings me to the second important lesson of the parable of the lost sheep, which I think is really beautiful. The flock is not complete without the black sheep. Mm-hmm. It's not complete unless all of us are present. I understand this to mean that if one of us isn't safe, none of us are safe. Right. If one of us is not going to heaven, none of us are going to heaven. Right. If one of us is not entitled to the same blessings and opportunities that allow us to get mm-hmm. to the temple and by extension eternal life, none of us are getting those blessings and opportunities. I'm not going to heaven without you, and you're not going to heaven without me. We see this with, we see the same uh, sentiment echoed with the dead, and we're seeing it again echo, echoed with everybody else. It just speaks further right. to, to the great interdependence of Christianity about how we're all in this together, mm-hmm. all of us or none of us. And I really like that about the parable. Yes, that message about everyone being important and every one person being valuable and the efforts of going after the one 
to join the 90 and 9, that is an important message. But why we have to do that, I believe, is an even more important message. Not only is every soul valuable, but every soul is valuable because without all of us, we're not getting there together. Exactly. And I think people say, well, like... The proclamation works for 95% of us. Well, first of all, it doesn't. It doesn't no. really work for anyone. But, like, um, no one fits an ideal mold. Um, but anyway, but people are like, well, LGBTs are only 5% of the, the uh, population. Like, why should we make a big deal about this? Why should we? And this, this parable talks about why we should. Mm. Because um, Jesus let, it says that the, Jesus said that the, uh, shepherd left the 99 in the wilderness, um, which really in context means that he didn't go home with them right? and just leave the lost one out wherever it was lost. He, he left the 99 there and did not take, he delayed taking them home until everyone was, was, was yep. safe. And then everyone went back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is just so beautiful. Like like we can't be straight people can't be made perfect without LGBTs, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like all these people who think, oh well, I've got mine, and somehow you're gonna have to <laughs> fend for yourself. Or yeah, whatever. you know, deal with your the crumbs that you get. I'm like no, that's not gonna happen. That is not what Christ st- stood for, um, and that is the opposite of everything that Jesus taught. Mm-hmm. Um, like not only. Are we not getting there together? But you kind of bear the responsibility right. of making sure that we get there right. together. Because look, if you had, if you're, if you're chilling in the celestial kingdom at this wonderful banquet, and and your LGBT family f- and friends aren't there, are you going to be happy? Is it gonna be this, going to be? It's not. It's not going to be the celestial kingdom. Like, right. I have to. I won't be able to sit down and enjoy until we're all there. Right. I'm. Yeah. Like my delay. I'll yeah. be delayed. I'll we're be delayed. Ex- we're, we're exalted together. We're exalted together. Yeah. And further, if we want that to happen, we bear the responsibility of going back and getting everybody and coming together. Right. So, yeah, I'm not asking for changes for 5% mm-hmm. of, of the church. I'm asking changes for 100% of the church. Yes. We all benefit from this. And a, and a similar thing is true for um, our approach to women in the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just want to – I just want to – I just want to echo that real quick because this is the real message I feel like of the parable of the lost sheep. Like anti-racist work, anti-homophobia work is all self-work at the end of the day. Like we're not doing this just for other people. We're doing this for ourselves just as much as right. we're doing it for other people. So when you said this is about this isn't about the 5%, this is about all of us, that's that's what I hear. Right. Is that it's for the 100% because this doesn't if this doesn't work for the 5%, it doesn't work for the 100. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. important message. And I want to say one thing about the parable of the prodigal son because that u- gets used against queer people all the time and mm. we get put in the position of the uh, son like, "Oh, my son, he's gay and I hope he comes back one day." Mm-hmm. I want to actually flip the script and make it the reverse. Because if you look at the beginning of the parable, it's the father who was basically rejected by the son. The son said, look, I want my inheritance. I want an advance on my inheritance, and I'm going to chill and, and I don't and go away. And it's the son that broke the relationship. The, the father didn't do anything wrong. Right. And I think it's the father that's, that uh, is in the position that queer people find themselves. We didn't do anything wrong. It's people who have abandoned us, people who have rejected us, people who, they're the ones who have broken the relationship for no good reason. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, we're going to be uh, celebrating when they come around. Yep. And so that's what I think. Like, 
after the church makes the changes it needs to be, I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to say I told you so. <laughs> I won't need to. You are such a better man than I am. I know. won't need to. <laughs> I, w- I won't need to say it. People will know. People yeah, will know. They'll know. Um, I joined the church in, in 2015. People will know that I um, had it right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I won't even need to say it. I will just be so glad that I have those people back in right relationship because that's really what repentance is all about is being back in right relationship. Mm-hmm. Being reconciled to that, you know, them who you offended or them who you wronged. So, no. yeah, absolutely. I really like that a lot. There was, um, okay, we talked about, you talked about the rich man and Lazarus, uh, I think it was like a two few or weeks three, ago. Yeah, yeah, a few weeks ago about how, and you know, I never read this parable from top to bottom. But I thought it was very interesting. I, I noticed the insight that you made um, mm-hmm. when, we, when you discussed it about how when the rich man found himself in hell, he was like, but I got a poor friend yes, that I never paid attention to, to in that life. that relationship and said, look, he, I know his name. Mm-hmm. That, that's what gets me is he mm-hmm. knew his name. Like I walk by people on the street all the time. Um, I, I've made a commitment that when everyone asks me for uh, money, I will give them something. Mm-hmm. Um, I carry single dollars around so that anytime someone asks me, I can give them at least something. Not that a dollar helps them, but I can at least look in their eye with with human dignity mm-hmm. uh, uh, restored, mm-hmm. right? And and treat them as a person and not just walk by and ignore them, right? Um, and but I but a lot, a lot of people we walk by, we don't even know their names. He knew his name. Think about that. He knew his name. He had some kind of relationship with yes. this guy, yet in life, didn't do anything about didn't that. Didn't do anything for him. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is damning, if nothing else. Just. I know. It's, yeah, it's pathetic. And I, I think about many of the leaders in our church, uh, and even the members, like, oh, like, there's so many people that know gay people, mm-hmm. and then won't take, take any risk, any social risk mm-hmm. to help us. And they um, know more than their names. Like, they know their stories. They yeah. know their families. They know so much more about these people yeah. than their names. How much more condemned are they going to be for simply not taking a more active role mm-hmm. in their access of the atonement? Right. You know what I'm saying? Just, I, I, that was probably, that's probably my biggest thought right now mm-hmm. as I talk about this is just how necessary it is that when we see people who need to be ministered to, especially those on the margins of society. We have a real responsibility of doing what is in our capacity. There's a reason that this man is acknowledged as a rich man, you know. And we don't get his name. We don't get his name. It's not. Don't get his name. Like, which goes to show the reversal of fortune. Like, this mm-hmm. is the person whose name is remembered. Is mm-hmm. the one who is marginalized, and that the, the rich man's identity was erased. Basically, he yep. thought he he was going to be live. He, his memory was going to live forever. It didn't. And it, what you just said reminded me of the um, parable of the good Samaritan in Luke ten, and the individuals who walked by on the other Yo. side of the road. Yo, there's going to be so many people who are going to like. You know, I I could have done something. You could have done my, something for my LGBT friends, mm-hmm. my my people of color. Even I, on the last day, I'm going to think about all the things that I could have done for people of color that I didn't, mm-hmm. that I could have. Uh, and that's not going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot about that second guy who walked by him. Like, he looked on him, you know what I'm saying? He acknowledged the unfortunate situation that he was yeah. in, and he still didn't do anything. Like, that is... 
that is going to be a terrible thing to account for mm-hmm. when you are at the ju- when you are at judgment day you had the means to help somebody and you did not mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. is a situation i never want to find myself in you know i'm reminded of oscar schindler who uh who uh who saved a number of jews mm. and he he was horrified at the end uh, i i think he saved several thousand he said, like, I could have sold my ring and, and saved a few more. Like, that's the depth of, of, of awareness you, we will all have on Judgment Day. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's scary, man. That is scary. So, important, important messages, important lessons. Anything you wanted to take from, um, what, what parables did we not touch on? Foolish Rich Man we talked about. Parable of the Great Supper we talked about. Uh, rich man and Lazarus, we talked about lost sheep, lost coin, lost. Mm-hmm. There was a third lost thing, was there not? <laughs> the prodigal son or the lost son. Yeah, we yeah. we we basically talked about all these parables. Do you yeah. have any other thoughts you want to you want to mention before we move on to the prayer roll? Nope. Okay, then let us move on to the prayer roll. Derek, do you want to go first, or should I? <laughs> um, because you know what I'm about to talk about. Well, I think we're about to talk about the same thing. Okay. So you go first. I will go first. And let's not name people's names. Absolutely. No names here. No names here. Um, So the internet be wildin', man. Internet really be out here wildin'. Um, I'll say many times in our faith how much I value the church and its core doctrines, but the people, like, Lord, the people, they, they exhaust me something fierce, man. There's one young person in particular who has really been exhausting me. Uh, for, for 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 news and general discussion of LDS topics, like I, I follow several LDS themed forums on social media. In a few of them, I've encountered this person for the sake of preserving the names of the what we'll just call him. We'll call him Jay. That's what we'll call him. Okay. Okay. Jay. Jay. I, I don't know much about this guy other than the fact that he has a history of saying questionable provocative things not the least of which marginalizes people with the gospel as his weapon case in point a couple of days ago he posted a video to a few of these forums that okay i can't read the title because that'll just give it away but the whole point of the title was to basically say that the church bears no responsibility for the mental trauma the mental and emotional trauma that homosexuals go through by which they experience depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. So that was the whole theme of this video. Now, let me stop right quick. The Most times that I see someone who thinks like this guy we'll call Jay, when you title a video this smugly, I, I know that I'm not going to be in for the best intellectual exercise. But I watched the whole thing, and in it... I did too. Okay. So in it, several claims are made besides the title claim. Before we get to those things, though, the first thing I want to mention is that the person who made this video, he is not a psychologist, he is not a sociologist, he's not a statistician, he is not a men- member of the LGBTQ community. But he has made a video where he, in essence, spends 12 minutes talking about why LGBTQ saints are wrong about the struggles they experience. The supposition that this man's inexperienced and uninformed opinion was wanted or necessary in any form, is the biggest evidence of homophobia in this entire conversation. 
But let's mm-hmm. talk about we, we we can talk about briefly the meat of his argument, yeah. which I'll just highlight. The, yeah, I just want to say this is yeah, what, go ahead. where I don't know if we've used the word straight splaining, but that's what this is. It's that like is mansplaining, what it is. but well it is mansplaining too, but it's yes. also like, oh, I know this situation so much better than you do. And he has actually hasn't done the homework. He, he has not done the yes. homework. He's he's acting more like a defense attorney than he is like someone who's saying, Oh, I Queer people are suffering. I want to help, and I want to figure out what's going on. Yes. Like, straight people can do that, mm-hmm. right? Um, th- I'm fine with that, but that's not what he did. He's like, I need to exonerate the church, and I need to figure out what I can say that does that. So Absolutely. go ahead. So th- th- this, is the, this is the meat of the arguments he's making in here. For The first thing I noticed that he did was reduce the plight of LGBTQ folk to an intellectual exercise that was not exactly cogently refuted. There are a significant number of factors that he failed to consider in his analysis of suicide rates. For example, fewer people were out in the 1950s, which he cites the stat of how people back in the 50s, suicides were lower back then than they are now or whatever. And um, he didn't consider that how murders and violent crimes were reported back then is drastically different from today. And also fewer people were quote unquote out back in the 50s. So there's that whole thing. He dismissed the role of church teachings in the mental trauma of LGBTQ folks, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, not to mention the thousands of anecdotes from members of that community themselves saying that, no, it was the teachings of the church or people claiming to have teachings of the church that, in effect, made me feel this way. There was the assertion that following the gospel can mitigate this mental trauma without considering that the source of those teachings is the same as the source of the trauma for many people. Uh, there was the fact that he leaned on statements from LDS church leaders as evidence of love from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to the LGBTQ community without properly acknowledging that functionally there is still not an opportunity for LGBTQ folks to have a seat mm-hmm. at the table with the rest of us who view marriage as our birthright. Uh This one was by far the biggest thing for me. He blamed pro-LGBTQ groups for their own feelings of isolation that ultimately led to their suicide. That, I thought, was super nefarious. Um, He did this while affirming, while calling their affirming messages propaganda, even though there is plenty of evidence in both scripture and academia to suggest that queer-affirming lifestyles are neither sinful nor dangerous to society. So, like, overall, for someone who claims to have you know, who claims to acknowledge the complexity of this issue, he really did not seem to do his homework. And yeah. finally, like, the, the biggest thing, the overarching thing for this, for me, was the fact that he used the gospel of Jesus Christ to, in essence, deny LGBTQ folks the love of Jesus Christ. Like, that's not what the gospel is for. If you are going to ch- claim allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ and then go into a community where you have not done your homework, where you are not experienced, where you have not really engaged conversation with anybody, where you haven't listened to anybody with more experience or education than you, and you are going to try to use the gospel to say, you guys don't know your own oppression, here is how you deal with your issue, that is deeply problematic. That is one of the most uncharitable things, in my opinion, you could ever do, is to use the gospel of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. to tell people in Mm -hmm. a marginalized group that they don't have a place or that they're wrong or that their feelings and that their oppression isn't valid. Yeah, and I just want to say one thing about this. So he was looking at uh, suicide in Utah especially, and there's been a rise in suicide uh, in Utah over the past like decade or two. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it spikes every yes. general conference. 
and uh, not just uh, people who die by suicide, but also people who attempt suicide. Yeah. Both of those numbers are significant. And so here's the thing about when the state of Utah collects data around suicide, they don't ask what that person's orientation was, and they don't ask what that person's religion was. Mm. They collect things, I think they collect like age and gender and stuff like that. But so here's the thing, we don't have comprehensive data around this, and that's, and that's true, right? Mm -hmm. And so his point is that we don't have the data to show this correlation is, is, is misleading. Because, yes, there's a sense in which we, we don't actually have as much data as we would like. We would like more data. And they're mm -hmm. trying to get more data as to exactly how all of these variables um, are in, entangled and what role the church uh, culture teachings. Uh, and it, it's not just the leaders. It's, it's people, the culture, the, the, the history, the doctrine, all these other are perce the perception of the doctrine. All those things, so complex. Um, and so... What he's doing is taking our ignorance and saying, you know what? Uh, instead of saying, yeah, we don't know as much as we, we should, let's find out and, and save some lives. He's like, mm -hmm. we don't know as much as we could, so you can't conclude that the church is to cause for this. Mm -hmm. right? That's where he goes with it. So it's, yeah. it's academically irresponsible. Dishonest. Yeah. Um, and so, so his, his whole video was absolutely homophobic and abusive. Now, I'm not personally – personally bothered by these things mm -hmm. i am basically immune to homophobia i eat it for breakfast i <laughs> i uh i literally go to to homo homophobic websites um to build my resistance against them like nothing can make me feel any less uh safe or at all i just but what i what i do know is is which allows me to get in those situations and say what needs to be said and, and let's talk about what you said because you said something that needed to be said and there were some repercussions in the group because of this. Yep, there was. Like, even though I, I did want to talk about this video, I, I don't really think the video necessarily was the worst part right. of this. Haters me. are going to hate. It's when the allies, yes, or, or supposed allies, the admin, the people with mm -hmm. power, the people with power, now cross the, on the other side of the road. Yeah, this 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 really this really bothered me. Like in the same thread. I mean, of course I'm going to say something. I didn't agree with the video. Something needed to be said, and I didn't want to be somebody just sitting on the sidelines. But I said something, and then the admin came at me for saying something because, wait for it, I didn't say it in a respectful manner. Like, this really got under my skin because you know how I feel about respectability politics. Right, right. Well, I went through – sorry. I want to say, first of all, you're black, so nothing people disagree with you about is going to sound respectful coming from you. Mm -hmm. Right? That's no, it's just, not. That has to be named. Right, right. Right. Like nothing I say is going to be perceived that way in the first place. Martin Luther King, at the end of the day, was assassinated while wearing a suit. Like it doesn't matter how respectable you are. And you know I've had a whole thing, a whole transformation, re you know, revolving around respectability politics. Mm -hmm. I was raised to abide all the rules of respectability. I was raised in the mm -hmm. South, a black man in the South. So I made, so my parents made sure I had the best education that they could afford that was, you know, available to me. And they taught me manners to make sure I knew how to navigate white spaces. But, you know, it wasn't until I really, you know, came into, you know, my late teenage years to early adulthood that I realized that these things were not always, if at all, going to help me navigate white spaces. They were, if anything, going to prolong the punishment or prolong, not, sorry, not prolong, but delay the punishment or delay the abuse. But the abuse was still going to come. Yeah. So, like, what I thought immediately was that... Um, you know, obviously, how are you going to talk to me about respect 
when you literally allowed a homophobic post in this group, which they don't think is homophobic, obviously. So here's the thing: if if it were a, if it were like a conservative uh, themed uh, forum, and they didn't have a rule about homophobia, of course, like we have no standing to complain. Yeah, within their system, correct. But here, if you look at the rules, it says one of the rules is don't be a homophobe. Correct. That's literally what it says. So mm-hmm. I, you know, of course, we thought, well, we can appeal to that, and yes. and uh, well, that did not work. That did not work. Like we cannot because they don't they don't recognize homophobia because of their straight privilege. They do like not if recognize they don't it. see it. They think that they're objective about it. Right. And it's not there. It's not there. And this is not the first time something like this has happened in the group. Like I remember when I first joined this particular forum, um, Dr. McGriggs, Dr. Dr. Misha McGriggs was had just joined the group around the same time that I did and was dealing with some rather racist things being said. Mm-hmm. Dr. McGriggs is a black woman. She's a little bit younger than I am, but you know, she's a doctor. She studies racial relations for a living. However, when she pointed out the racism, both as an academic and as a black woman, they, she was shouted down for her tone, not the racism that was being displayed toward her and in general. Mm-hmm. She ended up being first muted and then kicked out of the group while the people who are launching the racist attacks are still there to this day. And that's why I wrote this poem. You know, I love how Jesus taught in parables because then they couldn't really catch him the same way. Mm -hmm. And my my poem that I wrote is is essentially that because I can talk about the issue without getting... Uh, well, what happened to you? Not not that your <laughs> not that your strategy was wrong at all, but I just what I just took a different strategy, and um, and they uh, they can't complain that I'm attacking someone uh, when I'm just sharing this poem that's really about a dance. And the the basic premise of this dance is two people are dancing. One person is stepping on the toes of the other, mm-hmm. and the other person asks nicely, and then. Still no change, and he keeps being more insistent, and then gets louder. And the the person doesn't even acknowledge that they're standing on your foot. And how's this going to look across the room? The person across the room is not going to see the little toe on the other toe, no matter how painful it is. They're going to hear the screaming first, mm-hmm. and this is exactly what happens. So everyone comes out to punish the person who's w- blowing the whistle, mm-hmm. and they don't actually go after. Like, what? Uh, yeah, uh, obviously, screamings can be annoying if you're at a dance. But right. look, there's an alarm for a reason. Yes. And I think that your approach, in my view, was justified because mm-hmm. um, you were uh, you weren't attacking him as a person or right. calling him names. You were saying this video has certain effects and consequences, and those are bad. Mm-hmm. That's really all you said. And you said that this was not appropriate in the group, and right. that he was not appropriate in the group to participate that way. Right. That's all fair. That is not a personal attack. Mm-hmm. But they framed that as a personal attack because they don't see the whole power and privilege dynamics at play. Mm-hmm. And that's where, where I posted the poem about the foot. Mm. Um, uh, foot poem. Yes, the dance, the foot poem. So, like, I, I mean, this kind of thing was really not new to me. Like, I didn't expect to experience this. Um I'm not going to say I didn't expect to experience it, but in this manner, I did not expect to experience mm-hmm. it. I didn't expect this to happen in an LDS space. Um, I mean, I could have, I probably should have given, you know, the LDS culture's history of dealing with things like race and things like, uh, you know, the LGBTQ community. But, you know, with young people in particular, I did not expect to experience this. 
this idea that not the actual homophobia, but the person calling it out would be attacked. And, you know, we've seen this in history. We saw this happen to Kaepernick. We saw this happen to, we saw this happen to LeBron. We saw this happen mm-hmm. to Muhammad Ali, Jackie Robson, uh, Paul Robeson, and, you know, you know, Du Bois. We've seen this happen to a lot of, you know, civil rights heroes and people who have otherwise drawn yeah. attention to problematic issues. But, you know, that's still, the fact that it's still happening and the fact that, nothing is being done to make it right in a space that supposedly has checks and balances to make sure that these things are made right mm-hmm. was very discouraging, you know, because when I initially got the warning and then muted eventually, they told me that I had been warned multiple times, which I had not been. They told me that I had made a personal attack, which I had not done. And then they told me that this, this was the richest part to me. They said they had to punish me in order to be consistent. And I'm just like, well, if you're going to be consistent, punish the homophobia. Like, why aren't you punishing the homophobia? Yeah. Well, they don't see be, it. They, they don't, don't see it. it. Oh, and this they was another thing. not to see it. This was yeah. another thing. The tokenization of the one person in the LGBTQ community they had on the admin committee. Like, that person clearly had an issue with this video. Right. They clearly acknowledged the homophobia. But guess what? Because she was the only person that had an issue, she got outvoted. Even though she's the person yeah. on that team with the most experience, yeah. a person who is actually part of that community, yet she still got mm-hmm. ignored in favor of a homophobic video yeah. getting posted that is mostly being run by this admin team of straight, cis, white men. Yeah, and um, there are some allies on the team, but they're not enough to outvote. They're like, not enough to outvote. Yeah, which there's begs- one strong ally on the, on the admin team, but there's little that he can do. They tried to... This is the dumbest thing. After that happened, mm-hmm. they tried to add me as an admin. Mm-hmm. And, they, and their, their argument was everyone on the admin team um, was in favor of bringing me on mm-hmm. because they thought I'm like a compromise thing that everyone, you know, I'm nice and gentle and respectful and I am whatever they thought, which, which is true. And they <laughs> thought that, that, oh, they need an LGBT person on the team and they, uh, they could all – agree on me as a can- consensus candidate because there's some radical people that they wouldn't ever pick right right um and i i'm like that no this is not gonna work because all it will do is um pink have you heard the term pink wash pink wash like pink- with the sound no basically it's where something's problematic, and you put a you put a queer face on it, and then it's now all all okay. Oh, like a rented Negro. Yeah, yeah, kind of like it. that, right? Yeah, I got it. Blackface, white opinions, gay <laughs> straight opinions. Well, it's I not so it. much that, but but what they could say is, oh, look, we're not homophobic. We have a gay person on our because that's what they were doing. That's exactly what they were doing. Yeah, and so what it would do is just legitimize the problem. But without putting me in a position where I, and unless they gave me like veto privilege, where I, like whenever there's homophobia, my vote wins, yes. right? If they did that, okay, maybe. But if if they're just gonna put me on and I'm gonna get outvoted in the admin, in the moderation stuff, that doesn't do anything good. It just makes the group look good. Mm-hmm. It makes the group look, and it would it would fool it would fool people who trust me. Right. Into trusting the group because there's a lot of people who know me mm-hmm. online and a lot of queer people, um, both people who hate the church and people who love the church. Almost all of the queer population, uh, even when they don't agree with me, they respect me and say, oh, look, Derek at least is, you know, has a reason behind this and has uh, the foundation from which to speak these things. Mm-hmm. So um, 
But yeah, I'm like, no, I'm not going to be the... So what I said is, I will be admin if you bring James on too. That was my ultimatum. <laughs> and they did not take that. And uh, what I said was, I'm willing to be like an advisor behind the scenes. Like if you have a question, you can all come to me and you will... Because they said we wanted LGBT influence on the admin team, which they do need. They need it, yeah. So I would say you can get my influence, but you can't get my name publicly as an admin because then I will be responsible for all this mess. But if I give you advice and you don't take it, then I'm not responsible for it. You are. Mm-hmm. And um, that's I gave my first piece of advice to them, which was to reinstate you. And they did not take it. No. Which proves to me what I said all along is I will not be respected on this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's interesting how yeah. this all all plays out, and and it would be it would be, yeah it would be so much simpler if they were just bad people because then we could just say look you know what you're being a bad person and we can bring them to repentance. Mm-hmm. But the thing is they think they're doing the right thing they're and they they're not completely evil which makes it so much harder mm-hmm. to fix to fix the problem. I think all this says like if there was ever a case study for why we need more representation in the church like this is this is it right here just yeah you know i i just came up with this idea we were talking about judgment day earlier yeah like all these people all of their administrative uh mistakes and all their comments and all the things that they saw and didn't act on that's going to be time stamped on judgment day Mm -hmm. and god is going to bring up all of our our uh, computer histories <laughs> and people are afraid of the porn, but what they're really should be afraid of <laughs> is all the times where they walked by on the other side and didn't, and didn't intervene when someone else was hurting, when someone else needed uh, some intervention and support. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what people should be afraid of on judgment day. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm definitely more afraid of, <laughs> Of that stuff than I am of the porn I've browsed, but like that's neither here nor there. <laughs> there is like I I, I, I recalled another story um, last year, the 40th anniversary of the priesthood ban being lifted. Mm-hmm. There was an event uh, called the B1 Conference yeah. in Salt Lake City. Now, the church wanted all the positive optics they could find, and uh, they brought all the prominent black celebrities they could find. Uh, Two of them they brought in were Jabari Parker and his brother and agent, Christian Parker. Christian got to visit with either Neil Anderson or Elder Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve. And I don't, I don't remember which of them it was, but they were having a conversation about representation in the temples and the meeting houses and the visitor centers mm-hmm. about how there's no, in essence, black Jesuses or black families being represented. Um, one of them had a painting commissioned of, I, I suppose it was one of their children in Jesus garb, which, you know, fine, do you. But Christian made the point, I would like to see a picture of one of my children wearing that someday. Or a picture like that mm-hmm. on my desk or on one of your desks or in one of our meeting houses. Mm-hmm. Do you not see why I would want this? And that member of the Quorum of the Twelve was like, I didn't think of that. Or no, I would. I don't see the problem with that. You know, these are the people who are in the upper echelons of leadership in the church. They're not thinking about this stuff. They're not thinking about it because it's not affecting them. And that is what makes the lack of representation so dangerous. You yeah. you brought up a while ago about the 
how, how positive it would be to have an auxiliary organization for the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is why such a thing would be necessary. These mm -hmm. people, we need to have the ear. Uh, if, we, if we can't be among them, we at least need to have their ears. We need to make sure that queer voices, voices of people of color, are accessible to the members, members of the Quorum of the Twelve because there's no reason that this kind of thing should be happening. Like, this is right. just an online yeah. forum right here. Yeah, and things like this happen with what happened here on a micro scale happens with the quorum of the 12 too because they'll, they'll they'll say things that if they even knew a gay person for half a second they wouldn't say they would not say like oh it's just an addiction or a yeah or it's a you know it's a problem just for this life and mm -hmm. and all these i love this statement that elder holland had once that that says what we know always trumps what we don't know mm. in, the, in the church yeah and what we know is that we're all children of god and that we all have a place and that we all were on the right side in the pre-mortal council. And we know that for sure. Absolutely. We don't know, quote, as a, as a people, what exactly happens to gay people in the next life. We mm -hmm. don't have any sources mm -hmm. or, or established tradition on that. We have speculation and we have folklore and we have, well, God's going to fix gay people, which actually leads to suicidal thought. Yeah. Um, so we don't have actually any knowledge knowledge as a whole people like um now now queer people have knowledge right yes. but we as a whole people don't have that knowledge yet and so people are are messing up people's lives in this life based on stuff that they don't even actually know about the next life correct correct um yeah yeah and in terms of um i just want to mention i loved going with you a few weeks ago to the um to the concert with uh black performers and composers uh, it was called Nigra Sum said Formosa, I am black but beautiful. Mm -hmm. From um, so that text is from Song of Solomon, uh, one verse five. Yes, I am black but comely or something like that. Yes, and uh, which is interesting because the uh, the the Hebrew text is Shechora ani v'nava, I am black and beautiful. The the conjunction vav is almost always translated as and unless the translator detects there's a context that implies uh, a contrast. Mm. So it's the bias of the translator that makes it come out as but. It could, it, it absolutely, absolutely could be and as well. I am black and beautiful, which mm. is what I think it should have been, right? Mm. Um, but that was just a very beautiful concert. Mm. It was, it really was. There's a, uh, yeah, I'm glad I went to that whole thing. It was a great concert. Anyway, that 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 is all I got to say. Yeah, that's all about I got too. That they some dusty children of God, but I will genuinely pray for them and their welfare. I'm gonna yeah, pray me for too. me too because, yeah, I um I feel some time I feel some kind of way about it, and I feel like I mm. got a right to be, but at the same time, it's not going to be. I I don't want to be in this spirit of anger or rage if I'm going to properly right. address this whole thing. And it does shove us closer to Christ on the cross um, and uh, and uh, which 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 in a way we win because yeah. we end up closer to Christ we end up with the spirit of Christ and we we, we win yeah when, when when I eventually become unmuted I'm going to try not to be petty but that, that is the best I can do for now okay <laughs> all right you got any other thoughts Derek? nope nope have a good week everyone yes we are done thank you guys thank you bye